Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Today is Thursday, December the 16th, and we gather this Advent around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The light shines on us today in Matthew chapter 5. We just got done with the blessings of the Beatitudes and knowing this reality that we are poor in spirit. And it's quite humbling to start off that way because I always want to know that I have a little bit to give. But from that blessing, it changes in transition, not changing necessarily, but extends into this to see salt and light, to know more of Christ and what do we do with anger. All of this comes together as Jesus sits and he preaches to his disciples and he also preaches to us. So open up your Bibles for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we have with us regular guest Pastor Stephen Tice, vacancy pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much, Brady. It's good to be able to be on the air with you and uh, in the Word with you together. Always. We, uh, take a look at Matthew, the, you know, the walk through the, the prophets and the Old Testament promises fulfilled in Jesus and uh, be picking up the first of his, what we call discourses or five presentations of doctrine uh, in the book of Matthew that kind of parallels the five books of Moses, he has five different times where he talks about what he's doing and, and has these presentations. So move into this uh, understanding of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And this relates then back to the law of Moses uh, in Genesis, it's the beginning of Jesus' teaching. So we find it start here, if you will, in this particular section. You know what, Pastor, since you already wet our palate a little bit here, how about this? Let's, let's start digging in. Can you begin our time in prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Our good and gracious God, you call us to hear your word. You invite us to come to you by the invitation sent in Jesus, our Savior, and the promise that when we call, you will answer. Lord. We have great need, we have great spiritual need for you to constantly grant us forgiveness of sin. We have great physical need for you to constantly support our body and soul in this world with your gifts to the created world. We also have a constant need to find our true identity in Jesus Christ, who calls us to be his children, and as we learn today, appoints us to have an impact in the world around us as his witnesses. We ask you to bless our study today. We ask you to bless our observance of Advent. We ask especially your care and blessing to all those whose lives have been disrupted by national calamities and disasters, especially those who, who had loved ones killed by tornadoes this past weekend. Lord, continue to help us be aware that all of creation is groaning for the revelation of Christ at the end of the age when all things will be new again. Until that time, keep us strong in faith, and by your holy angels, keep us safe be the same we pray. Amen. Amen. As you look at these these words, as you can already tell, Pastor Tice has done his homework. So if you have any questions concerning our verses, 
drop us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Well, Pastor, as we begin, um, you've already all set up some of it for us, talking about the connection with this, the first five books of the Bible, and uh, Moses, and Jesus' words, and it's right after the blessing of the Beatitudes. So, Pastor, how do you want to start off our study today? Well, I think as we, uh, we look at the Beatitudes, it's, you know, the Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus taking the position of, of the rabbi. Uh, he, he sits down and begins teaching his disciples. And I think it would be accurate to say uh, part of what we have here is speaking the disciples and then others over here. Crowds followed him. And he began to teach the disciples. Others heard. But again, that phrase, he sat down, that's the, the indication in the culture of Jesus' time that the rabbi was now holding class, if you will. And so what we find is he begins by talking about how we are um, blessed, but he starts with the, the third person, they are blessed, uh, and blessed are they. And then he moves from the, the blessed are they to blessed are you when you are persecuted on behalf of my name. And that transition then leads us into teaching element of this particular segment where he says, not only you are blessed when you're persecuted, then he says what you are in the world. In verses 5 and 6 in particular, he tells them who they are and what they are going to be doing as his disciples, as his followers. And again, keep in mind, this is the first rabbinic setting for Jesus the rabbi. So he introduces who you are, where you're going to end up, and how this is going to work out. And, and uh, we sometimes overlook the fact that the disciples of Jesus didn't start out with this mindset, we're going to go find a, a theologian to teach us how to relate to the world. Jesus went and found them and called them to him. So this is, this is now his official, I'm going to use the word, introductory course on how to live as my disciple. And, and that's, well, and, uh, and then uses imagery for us to relate with. And I think even today's world, we can understand exactly what he's talking about. That's what I love about these, um, the 13 through 16, is because I vividly remember this as a child, and there's so much of the Bible, it just kind of, you know, slipped past me, you know, went over my head or, or I wasn't paying attention. But this is one of those portions that I vividly remember comparing this because I understood salt and I understood light, and, and boom, it would hit me between the eyes. So... So I'm ready to dig in. Are you ready? Yes, sir. I, I say we should begin. All right. So a reminder to your listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just read the first verse of 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So like you said, the second person, plural, you are the salt of the earth. He goes back to identity and then kind of has, all right, so what about restoration? Um, what is he saying that we're the salt? You are the salt of the earth. Well, you know, the, the, the concept here is that salt has a multiple, multiple uses, but that human life is not possible with salt. All human beings, actually all living animals, anybody with uh, any mammal, any creature with blood in its system, fish as well, we all need a level of salt 
There has to be a saline balance in us. So what Jesus is saying is you're valuable and you're life-giving. And this, this understanding of salt, I'm not going to push this too far, but we live in a culture now that's uh, wrapped up in, in North America. At least we have electricity, we have a refrigeration, we have freezers, we have canned goods. We don't quite understand this. You have to salt this food to preserve it or it will spoil before you can use it. We are far more dependent on pre-processed foods that somebody else salted. So to a, to us, most of the time, salt just means, oh, it's flavoring or highlights our taste buds. It also has a life-giving and food-preserving, life-enabling quality. So we can go beyond just salt as a item on the food table with a little seasoning out of a shaker. This is this is vital for life. This is a, a life-necessary element. Salt is salt is a big deal. In fact, we get the word salary from the word salt. The uh, Roman soldiers would pay the salt allowance. In some parts of the world, salt is more important than gold, for sure. So, and you salary hear, comes from the word salt. Yeah, and like you said, we could probably go way too far with trying right. to and make an analysis of this, but the basics is this. You have value. We need salt, and and as we need salt, um, the Lord see, sees need to die for you, and and this is who you are. Now, the next part is a little bit like, okay, so what is he trying to say now? If he just start stopped at the word earth, period, went to you are the light of the world, I would I would feel not so confused. But it says, well, mm-hmm. but if the salt has no taste, what good is it anyways? So who is that referring to? What does that mean? Yeah, we're looking at, at this realization that you you have a function and you have to, I'm going to use the word, be who you are. We are called to live as God's people, as disciples of Jesus. And so we, when we want to look at this understanding of living as God's people, we recognize that we are in the world for a purpose. And as God creates this identity for us and preserves it, he'll continue to give us the ability to interact with the world. And um, keeping in mind that, that this is now tied to Jesus. If, if you don't stay tied to Jesus, you can't be salt. So say that again, um, to be tied to Jesus? or What did you say? Well, when you're tied to Jesus, you will. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, we'd have Jesus use the words, if you abide in me, right. I abide in you. Um, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide or remain in my word. And so this this connection to Jesus. And I think uh, keeping in mind that, again, Jesus is functioning as the rabbi here. He's pretty much saying, you've got to follow my teaching. You've got to stick with what I show you. And uh, when we get to verse 17, that, you know, that becomes even more emphatic. Because um, the other thing to keep in mind, by the way, is that salt was part of the, the offering. We talked about this when we were looking at um, way back in Leviticus. Salt was part of the offering brought to the uh, the Lord's house when the sacrifice was made, mixed in with the grain. You know, the salt was always part of that sacrifice as well. So that it says something about bringing to God that which is of life value. So Jesus is telling his disciples, if you, if you lose that function, if you lose this relationship with me, you'll also use your lose your ability to be who you are in the world. And so we have this, this need to Stay connected to and attached to Jesus. 
I, like you said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And that's so to stay, to, to be connected to him, to keep our saltiness. Is that, is this, that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 And, and that's where our saltiness comes from. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See, one of the, and one of the, keep going. It, it, it's always important for us as Christians to say, we have all these things through Christ in us. Uh, you know, this is you know, the nature that we have because God has made us his people and now he's placed in us his spirit. And, and we aren't anything without Christ working through us and in us. And, and so this is, as Christians, we struggle with this partly because of, of our language issues. Um, the idea that somebody is in you is, is in English doesn't quite sound healthy. Um, but it's, it's more the idea that he is filling up what's empty enough. And that's, you know, that's language, I would say, that's theological. It'll go all the way back to St. Augustine. You know, the, the soul finds its rest in God, that God-shaped space in us that has to be filled up. And I, I think about this, too, that it was a title once, I think it was a Bible study that I had, and it was, it was titled Out, Out of the Salt Shaker. Oh, yeah. And that was just, just a good reminder that, that we are like in a salt shaker and God sends us out into the earth, um, sends us out into the world to be salt, you know, and light. And, and it, 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 the, the, the problem where that breaks down is that it's not like you come out of the salt shaker and God leaves you alone. Obviously, he's, you know, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He, he gives us these gifts by his word and sacrament, promises to be with us and so forth. But it really, that's a helpful, I, I like the tied, tied to Christ. I know, I know this, obviously, but, I, but I, um, it's very helpful as we look at it because, wow, I can, I can lose my saltiness, which is kind of scary yeah. as well. Uh, and uh, we look at, at following where we were before with the, the blessed or the meek blessed or those who are humble in heart. It's all tied to the, the call of first John the Baptist and then Jesus for repentance and, and realizing that, that now the, the work of the disciples and get to be the end of the gospel, we're not there yet, of course, will be that they are going to be sent out to invite people to repent and receive forgiveness of sin. That's part of the saltiness. That's part of salting the earth. The earth needs us to do that or the earth perishes. So let's move on to light. Like you said, we need salt, and I would argue that we need light as well. It's what the Lord first brought in creation, and so we need it. Um, verses 14, and we'll go through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It just reminds me of this when they sing that little kid song, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, <laughs> I'm going to let it shine is my first thoughts. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. What is he saying? Well, he, he's saying that, that God's people are the ones who bring the world the truth that it needs. Uh, I, you know, Paul talks about being spiritually blind. And uh, one of the things I always review with students in, in junior confirmation is this concept that we are by nature spiritually blind, dead, and enemies of God. And, and we, always, we always talk about what it means to be blind, because if you've never been blind, the word has an intellectual concept but no real meaning. 
but if you blindfold yourself for 24 hours and, and let no light in, you get a totally different perspective of what it means to be in the dark. And, and this idea that the world is fumbling and stumbling around because it does not have spiritual light or truth is, is really the, the bigger image here. Uh, it's not a biological, physical thing. It's, it's the spiritual truth that, that we have the, the light that shines on the, the path. You know, Psalm 119.105, the word is a lamp unto my feet and the light to my path. Well, you know, if you don't have that light and you're walking down a pathway, you don't know what's in the path. You could step on a snake or a scorpion. You could trip over a branch. We are here to help people see where the right, safe place is to walk. And again, pulling all those words out of scripture and those images, you know, the, the, the light purpose is to light the world. It's not to draw attention to itself in any way, shape, or form. It's to actually put light out. A couple uh, evenings ago, I was outside, took the dogs out uh, for, for an evening uh, break so that they could accomplish their biological needs. And it happened to be evening that the moon had just risen. Well, the, the Earth had rotated. Is what actually happened, and, <laughs> and just just beyond the moon, which was just a sliver of the new moon, was a bright, bright planet, Venus. But the the thing that struck me was because the moon was so darkened, the light of that star slash planet right next to it stood out so much more than I'd seen in weeks. And five days later, the moon was that much fuller and the brightness of the planet was that much diminished. Not that the light had changed. It was that the nearby light overpowered the other light. And so you and I are, we are the, uh, the light of the world, the, the true light of God, but we now shine Christ's light into the world. And, and this Again, back to that idea of light in the time when people had no electric power. Uh, you know, you don't flip the switch and get the lights on. You might light a lamp, but you have to trim the wick and all the other things that go in with that. And so the, the light of the world, this is a, you know, a, a concept, again, for people who live with electricity and, and instant on lighting, don't get the same impact that came in, in the older time when with the natural light of the moon and the sun you know, get up in the morning in the sun dog, you can do things you can never see or do at nighttime. We can do that now with electric light. But in those days, when Jesus said these words, the light that was necessary, he was talking spiritually, of course, was something that everyone knew without light, you had to be slow, careful, and maybe even making a danger of being hurt. So he's, he's saying that his disciples, you, plural, that include us, by the way, we're here to help others avoid the danger that's inherent in our spiritual existence in this world. So we're the light of the world. And and you can translate it, you're the light, you're the one that gives light, light in the world, if I can say it, verbal construct. And this whole understanding that without that light, people dwell in darkness. And, you know, go back to the, the messianic prophecy, people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. What does that mean? Somebody came in and flipped the switch? Well, no. It means now a light dawn. The, the sun is rising. The glory of the, of the coming dawn. Again, things that if you live in a large city or a community that has street lights or you live on a farm with a 24-hour yard light out there, you kind of miss it. 
So we have this gift of God bringing real light. And, and right now we have in our world a constant struggle between the light and the darkness. And, and it, you hear it in the news, you read it in, in the events going on, and then the explanations given for what's happening in the world, the darkness keeps trying to claim its light. It, it keeps saying, no, this is not evil. No, this is not evil. This is okay. These are good. What's out there many times is, is darkness attacking the light, and you and I are called as God's people to keep shining the light. So we speak the truth. Let's call put whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is just. These are the things to think on, to talk about, to focus on. Be light in the world is what Paul's saying in that passage. And this is where... Like and, and and you've you said this many times in our program, you know, that scripture interprets scripture and when we see the whole picture, I mean it's a beautiful tapestry. Obviously, the Lord says, Let there be light, and there was light, which then brings us to Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And then and then we see right before this, Matthew four, it quotes Isaiah nine, one and two. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Put it all together. Then he does that second person plural, you are the light of the world. So we cannot separate God from this as if I have this, mm -hmm. you know, nice little light within me that can really do this. No, it's the light of Jesus that shines on us, um, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And from there, it's just part of who we are, that the light will be shown through people um, since we are salted and out of the salt shaker and lid, we go and light the shine so that they may see our good works. So people will see, you know, matter if you try to hide it, it, it happens and not for your sake, but that they give glory to the father who is in heaven. I mean, the connection is just beautiful. Yeah. It just takes us out of the equation, puts Jesus right at the front and center and shows, Hey, God is at work. His reign is still here upon us. So all that put together this is great stuff we we could just say amen and we're done right now because we've said it all no it's kidding um but any other thoughts you yeah. have here pastor <laughs> well the the uh the closing part there verse 16 what jesus actually says is shine your light be light it's, it's almost a command let your light shine he's, he's actually i'm going to use this phrase i use for turning on the power mm. he is giving the disciples the source of light that brings glory to the Father, and, and this is, again, God at work in us, who is shining the light, and again, through Christ in me, as I said earlier, is the understanding that, that the power of, of God's love is at work in us because God has given us forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, and, and opened our eyes to see the truth. Without Jesus, the light of the world, we wouldn't see it either. But now that we see it, we are light, and we shine. Pastor, as we look at the salt and light, um, what would be your encouragement for people who are feeling like they're in the darkness, or maybe they are in the darkness, or that they feel like, um, you know, they're like salt without any taste? What would be your encouragement to somebody who maybe is struggling with those realities as we hear these words? Well, I would, I would say two important things. One is acknowledge the reality of, of the broken world around you. The world, and I use that in the sense of the spiritual world, cannot give you or me any light, any salt. It can only come from God as our source. The other thing is, as a baptized child of God, as a 
child of, of God through his work, we already are in Christ. And so we are salt and we are light. Not, he just doesn't say, be salt and be light. He says, you are. And, and what we are called to do is not feel like it, but to be it. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean to say, if, if you're not feeling it, then go back to the Word. Go back, go back to the promises of God. And, and let God be the one that lifts us up. And again, this is what I said before. It's, it's, everything is through Christ in me, not by any of my own power. And if Christ is in me, then I am salt and I am light. And, and the Holy Spirit at work in me helps me to, to shine and, and to flavor things. And, and when I feel discouraged, when I feel in the darkness, turn away from self. Don't curb in on myself. Go back, back to Jesus. Go back to the Word. Go to the Lord's Supper. Go to worship. Let the Holy Spirit enlighten and lift us up. So as we look forward, it's kind of a unique, verses 17 through 20 is a unique transition I found throughout um, the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like he took a pause and tried to make sure that the teaching was correct. Oh, but you know what? Actually, we're going to have to take our break before we get to that. We're looking forward to this section that says Christ came to fulfill the law. We'll be taking our break. We are studying Matthew chapter 5 with Pastor Stephen Tice, and we will be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter 5 with Pastor Stephen Tice, vacancy pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. And Pastor, we just got past salt and light, and now it's almost like a step back, as I mentioned before our break, that Christ came to fulfill the law. And and, and it, it's a wonderful doctrinal statement for us to always look. It's a good lens for us as we look at everything in Scripture. Um, and so my thought was, let's, let's read this and let's dig in. Are you ready to move on to this section? Yes, sir. All right, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's stick with verse 17, because that's kind of the linchpin for this whole thing. As he says, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. What does that mean? Well, this, this word fulfill is, is tied to the idea of Old Testament promises being brought to their completion or, or in the sense of being filled up by Jesus' activity. 
the verb that's used there is the verb that means to fill up. And when we look at it, it's, it's the, the whole understanding that, that Jesus is, is really saying fulfill. He only talked about filling things up uh, a couple times in Matthew's gospel that anything other than the Old Testament. And when he pulls in this idea of fulfilling, it's this ongoing reality that the newness is there and the completion is there. And so there's, there's a, it's done and now something new is starting, but it's not, I rejected it. It's I've done all that needed to be done for it. Now we move to the new thing. He's not saying I'm throwing it away. I haven't come to destroy it, do away with it. I've come to complete all of what needed to be done so that now we can make the new beginning. In fact, we use this very same idea when we refer to the Greek portion of our scriptures as the New Testament. Jesus said the same thing at the Lord's Supper, that this is my blood of the New Covenant, the New Testament. And, and in doing all that, he did it on the same weekend, if you will, that he finalizes the action of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then rising again on the third day on the cross. He says, I first, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, gospel writers make clear that at times Jesus says, okay, in order to fulfill all scriptures, I have to do something. So he says, I first. You're supposed to fulfill the scripture. And, and Jesus said ahead of time, before he enacts these things to his disciples now, I'm going to do all that before I go back to the Father. I haven't come to destroy it, do away with it, but rather to complete it, to, to carry on God's actions in your presence and into God's future, which is your future. So in the broad sense, Jesus is, is opening up all of the old covenant promises to say, God is good to his word. Now, what does he promise next? He promised that I will come again, take you to be with myself. And as we look at those, those promises of God, he says, I'm not getting rid of any promises. I'm filling them up so that now the new promises can be enacted. Then he gets to some very difficult words. He's fulfilled the law, but whoever relaxes one of these commandments will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, but unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I feel like I'm confused. Okay, so, all right, I'm going to follow all these, but if I don't do as well as the Pharisees, who, by the way, don't have a good reputation throughout the Gospels, um, I will never enter. So I'm confused. Am I in, am I in or am I not? Hey, this is, this is the deal. If you think you can do away with the law, any part of it, then you're, you're doing away with what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill all of the law. And when you, when you look at it, what the Son of God offers here is clear statement that says God's Word is not discardable. And so if you teach anyone the, the least of these commandments, and by, when he says commandments, he's not talking about the Old Testament rules for the people of Israel. He's talking about God's, God's instruction for the heart of man. Those commandments, you know, the, the whole understanding, you know, out of the heart come evil thoughts, gets into a little bit later. And so what we're looking at here is the realization that if you teach that the commandments don't matter, you are going to teach others that they don't have to worry about following God's word and you'll give someone false hope. 
that will make you least in the kingdom of, of heaven or the reign of God. But whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great. And, and the reason for this is we do it by the power of God in us. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds abounds more greatly than that of the scribes, that of the Pharisees. Well, he doesn't say you have to be good and better than, he says you've got to have more righteousness than they have. And, and now we're back to a theological word. What righteousness do I have? None. What righteousness did a scribe or a Pharisee and Jesus say have? None. They were perceived as having righteousness. They were perceived as being religious people, uh, models to follow. And I would say outwardly, certainly, they most of them would have been models to follow. But they didn't have any righteousness. And to think, I just have to be as good as the scribe or as good as the Pharisee, that was, that was a target way too low. I'm called to be as good as God. Now, unless I'm perfect, I won't be as good as God. Since I can't do away with any of the commandments, I discover I'm not perfect. In this process, now we see that all of God's law is meant to turn us to Jesus. It's meant to turn us away from ourselves and, and back to God. And, you know, the commandments, as you look at the nation of Israel over the centuries under the kings um, of, of Israel, the call was always follow the word of God. Come to the altar, come to the tabernacle, whichever building it was, come to the temple, worship God, offer sacrifice for sin. And, oh, by the way, you got to do it again next week and next year and every year until you die. You don't have any righteousness of your own, so you have to keep bringing something to God. Well, what Jesus is telling his disciples and you and me is that if I think I have any righteousness to offer God at all, I will never enter the reign of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And, and so the words of his disciples now is, this isn't about being good church members. This is about having a new heart, being what you are, salt and light. It's not about living by the right rules. It's about being who you are. And I like to tell people this on occasion. You've heard me say it before. What we discover in, in Christ is that we are not human doings, but human beings. Oh. That, that, that being is, is who we are in Christ Jesus, because he gives us a new nature, a new life, a new identity. So that's what gives us right. As we look at this piggybacks off of yesterday's program with Dr. Heisey, talking about the Beatitudes. And there you see, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is an identity. This is who we are, poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. But in Christ, you know, we are salt. We are light. Uh, and, and to look at the righteousness language is that mm -hmm. in this life, we will hunger for th and thirst for righteousness. This is, this is part of, we feel that brokenness. So we want things to be made right. And then also kind of in verse eight, which I think really connects with this is he says, blessed are the pure in heart. And Dr. Heisey said just beautifully, being pure in heart is to have faith in the one who makes our hearts pure. And I think that really yeah. connects us to this too. And your righteousness is only going to be righteous because you are tied to Jesus tied up to him, abound, abiding with him as well. So all this connects just wonderfully for us to keep our eyes off ourselves and our eyes back on Christ. Yeah, and, and the, this, this curving in on ourselves in, in Servata too, as we say in Latin, the, the, the focus on me. And, and this is what happens when I start, and there's a term that 
sounds weird, but navel gazing, uh, meditation on the self. The problem with meditation on the self is it can't get you anywhere but the self. And so we're called to focus on Jesus. And this new identity, is, as you said, what gives us this humbleness of heart? And, and who is it that gives us the meekness? We don't get that on our own. God brings that to us. He, he gives it to us. The Holy Spirit works in us. And you know, the Lord humbles the proud and he lifts up the humble. And, and we look at, at who Jesus is and what he's doing. He's, he's fulfilling all the law and the prophets. And then he says, a little bit further on, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And now he's, he's moving to that new. This is my word. Now you teach what I say. And at the end of Matthew's gospel again, same statement, go teach them everything I gave you. And, and this is what the apostles continually do. I, I find this again and again, and I mentioned this before, that when Jesus teaches or, or uses an illustration or even a parable, he almost always is pulling out of the Old Testament somewhere a phrase or an image that then he reshapes or reforms uh, verbally to carry out a, a broader application or at least a clearer application. And then what happens with the apostles after Jesus has returned to the Father is they go out and teach what Jesus taught, and almost always they're doing exactly the same thing. They take the words of Jesus and then present them a little bit differently. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul I mentioned earlier talking about the darkness and, and those who are blind and, and the understanding that if you look at what's going on there, he is drawing on the image Jesus uses about being the light of the world. Now, he wasn't at this amount Jesus taught, but later Jesus taught him his own his own course, if you will. And, and so he's picking up on some exactly the same words or phrases that the other apostles put in their epistles, John's epistles and Peter and Jude, uh, just James, this, this whole focus on light, truth, that shows up there. And as James puts it, you know, if you're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, then what you need to do is you need to live as people who follow the teaching of Jesus. You don't do your own thing, you follow Jesus. And keeping the Sermon on the Mount in mind when one reads the Epistle of James is so helpful. Because it's not about do this and you have righteousness and seeking the stripes of Pharisees. It's do this because you're salt and light. And this is how you are to function as salt and light. To be who you are and you're salt and light. As um, one book I, I read, it was Finding... Finding Christ in the straw when referring to, to James. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a great way to say it. And the reference there is Martin Luther was not a big fan of uh, the book of James and called it the epistle of straw, meaning it didn't have much yeah. value. But when we see it in light of Christ, it does have value in the same way when we put our Christ goggles on and we see um, all of this, including the Old Testament and everything. And when we see people through the lens of Christ, seeing how that, that, that we are light and that God shines that light through others and Christ is our light and shines upon us. Um, there is value, and you've said that, that so well, and the righteousness comes from him. Um, mm -hmm. My mind is running all over the place here right now, but, I, but what does come to mind continuously as you've been talking is Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So there again, mm -hmm. pointing us to Christ. Any, any last thoughts before we get to anger? Well, I think, I think it's keep in mind that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophecies and the law itself. He fulfilled it, both in the sense that he completes it so that now 
God's righteousness is satisfied, and he does all that's needed. So now his words replace the words of Moses, not by saying Moses doesn't matter, but by saying Moses has been dealt with. Now mm-hmm. let's move forward with the new teaching from me, which, by the way, is the old teaching, just I filled up what was empty in what Matt and Moses gave you because you couldn't do it. So I did. I fulfilled it. Now listen to what I say next. These are my words. So we'll move on from there. To so the challenge is sin in my heart. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's where this is why 17 through 20 are so vital because, and I've been saying this with, um, as we looked at the book of Matthew, that the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes are, are the, the doorkeeper, the, the doorway, excuse me, doorway into the rest. And, and so is 17 through 20, that if you understand that Christ has fulfilled the law, uh, that his righteousness is above the Pharisees, and he shares that righteousness upon us, that we better understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, especially because now you're like, okay, all right, we got it, you know, and then all of a sudden you're talking about anger. You're going to talk about lust and divorce. I mean, it, it, it has, it's, he just goes right after it right away, which is why we have to make sure that we see Christ as our righteousness or else there's, there's no chance. There's no chance. So, so I'm, I'm ready to get to, I'm well, not ready to get to anger. Wrong way to put it. Um, to address, I want to, I'm ready to see the Lord address anger. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. He here does. we go. <laughs> so 21, we'll go all the way to the end of 26. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here's a a thought I want to start with here, Pastor, is typically I go through the Ten Commandments every year in confirmation. And in confirmation, usually kids are like, well, I know there's, you know, first commandment. All right. Well, you know, yeah, I like my football. I like my hockey, but I don't think it's God. Therefore, it's not a God. And then you're like, ah, oh, misused. Why well, don't swear that much? Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, even when I go to church, I don't pay attention, but still I, I believe in God and I honor your a father and mother. Well, overall I do. I love them. I mean, I tell them that, so I'm good. But then you get to the fifth commandment and everybody starts perking up and says, I have never murdered somebody. Therefore, I'm doing great on that. I got that one figured out. Let's just move on to number six. You know, we're in good shape. Right here, right. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. What is he saying in these verses? Well, he's, he's really saying that, that the challenge with you and me is, is that we want to make it the outward activity or the execution of, of the act and not the attitude of our heart. And I, I normally work through this with, with all the... Uh, students that you just mentioned in the confirmation scripture, I look at each of the commandments with this understanding. In what way in this commandment am I saying to God, God, you shouldn't have let this happen. You let it happen this way, 
I can have that property, but you gave it to that man. Since you gave it to him and made a mistake, I'll take it back from, from him. I'll take it away from him. Make it mine and correct your mistake. Which is another way of saying, I'll be God. You can't be anymore. I'll be God. And so when you look at anger, Jesus is saying it, it's not just the outward activity. It's not that which could take you to court. God has a higher standard. And you know, this whole understanding, you can be angry with your brother and, and the problem is my own sin. It's not my brother. And by focusing on my brother, I'm looking for rationalization or an excuse to say he did it or he shouldn't have done that or the problem is, is my brother. And by the way, the word brother here you know, ties right back to who the father is and who the disciples are. And if you can say it this way, that Jesus is being overheard by those who won't have the spiritual um, source of the fatherhood of God that the disciples are going to have. And so they're not going to hear things in quite the same way. And yet at the same time, many of those later will recall what he did say, and the Holy Spirit will call it to their mind, and then it will be applied to them, or they can live in it, I guess I should say. But, you know, this whole idea that if you call your brother, somebody doesn't have any sense, uh, you know, fool, uh, whatever the, the term is you want to use there, uh, racha, um, you know, this understanding that, that you're looking at somebody as someone who's, below you, beneath you, and you're going to be in big trouble. You're liable to judgment because you're angry with your brother. It's not just my anger. It's the sin that is my anger. And, and anger is a general rule to be uh, technical in the sense of the training I've had over the years is a secondary emotion where you became angry after you felt something else. You felt threatened and then you were angry. You felt hurt. You were angry. You felt mistreated, then you were angry. You felt betrayed, then you had anger. Anger is not a first emotion, generally speaking. And, and what that also means is the, the thing behind the anger is, is the bigger issue normally for us as human beings. And what Jesus is saying is, is the anger itself doesn't justify your response. The anger may have a cause, but that doesn't justify my response. Or as we used to tell our boys when they were growing up, it's okay to be angry. Anger doesn't mean you can do anything you want because you're angry. And, and here Jesus is saying somewhat the same thing. He's saying your relationship with God is tied to your relationship with your brother. If you're angry at your brother and calling him a numbskull, what are you saying about the father of your brother? You know, this is, this is your brother in Christ, my brother in Christ, because we have the same father. So if I'm saying he's a fool, I'm saying something about his father in the process. And, and this, you know, the idea of coming to the altar. Uh, with, with anger in your heart towards your brother and thinking that it doesn't affect your relationship with your father is totally wrong. So we have the need to recognize that, that Jesus says, hey, there's real, there's real spiritual danger in letting your anger control your relationship with others. And it, it reminds us very much so how, well, one, we have to do better. Because there's a lot of reconciliation we all need to have in our lives. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I've heard this in reference to receiving the Lord's Supper. And I've never really seen it be necessarily a one-to-one. -one, but did you, have, you, have you found anything on that? Often I'll say, say, well, I need to be reconciled with my brother before I take communion. Any thoughts on that? I've heard that numerous times in ministry. Yeah. It, it, it's tied to the phrase, going to the altar. And the understanding that the bringing the gift to the altar was, was an act of worship. 
an activity that involved, in almost every case, a priest of the people of, of Israel who is going to carry out the sacrifice. Uh, if you're coming to the altar, and the altar implies a sacrifice, well, what is the sacrifice? Thanksgiving, uh, cleansing, uh, or forgiveness, or is it a first fruits offering? And what it comes down to is, don't think you can come to God and participate in the rituals, if I can use that word, of relationship with God that are part of worship, and ignore the relationship with your brother. And that's obviously then in, in the modern uh, life of the church, where we no longer offer sacrifices at the altar, but we regularly come to the Lord's table to receive the great sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ, one time for our sins, and now given to us as, as the gift of forgiveness each time we receive it. We can't possibly think, everything's okay between me and God while well, I have this anger at my brother. And, and now God and I are okay, but we're not okay with that guy over there. So, you know, you, you can't have table fellowship, if I use that phrase, with somebody you're angry with and have table fellowship with God, not deal with the anger. And I, I, I think it shows up especially when we deal with within the Christian congregation where there are disagreements between individuals. And it's okay to have disagreements. That's not the problem. How the disagreement plays out, how we treat the other member of the body of Christ because we have a disagreement. And, and if we let that grow into anger and then it turns into some kind of resentment, boy, it's, it's you know, as James puts it, it's going to produce death. Can't, can't let the seed take root. And that's really what Jesus is getting at. Can't let the seed take root. As I mentioned earlier, when James gets to this in his epistle, he talks about your desires leading to sin and sin to death. I mean, he's really picking up on this very same thing. And there's a there's a group uh, within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod called Ambassadors of Reconciliation, and and they will work with those congregations that you mentioned that are um, needing reconciliation, but need outside help, which we which we often do. This is why you, our listeners, you have your pastor who can work with family members and work with others to bring reconciliation, because that's what our Lord has called us to do. That's exactly what is happening here. And one of the comments I remember speaking to a person who works for Ambassadors of Reconciliation is that reality that there are times where the congregation needs to suspend receiving the Lord's Supper until there is reconciliation over some kind of, not argument like what color should the carpet be, but where there's been, people have been wronged and people are not willing to repent. And that's not a one-to-one -one of what Jesus is speaking of, like you said. It's not necessary, but it but it's in there when we look at how it speaks about the Lord's Supper in, in first first Corinthians ten, you know, we're one loaf, one 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 body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um and and the Lord's Supper is is a is a sign of that union and it also unites us in the forgiveness of sins. So I really do yeah. see this as so practical because how quickly we can become angry at somebody. And how quickly, actually, if you really think about it, how quickly that reconciliation can actually happen if we go yeah. according to what our Lord has called us to do. So so what? that's crazy. It's just crazy to think about how quick those things can go, but also how quick our Lord restores us. Any thoughts? Yeah, and, and this is, this is again, getting back to salt and light. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of Christ within us that enables it to happen. God keeps his promises. And God says he'll do this. He'll do it. When we stand in the way and say, it's got to be my way, then God says, then it can't be my way, can it? And, and this is why we, we have to get together with uh, the one that 
that has something against us to work on being reconciled. And the word reconciled doesn't doesn't mean uh, say I'm sorry. It's it's not just okay. Well, I said I'm sorry. I, I apologize. No, this is to restore a relationship. And this whole understanding, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God did it first. Okay, I mean that's clear. He sent Christ to be reconciling Him to us. God reconciled the world to Himself in Jesus Christ, and now. As Paul says, we're ambassadors, and that's where the ambassador's reconciliation comes from. Uh, you know, inviting others to be, you know, reconciled to God. God's already reconciled to us. And here's what the disciples are being told. The problem is never between God and your brother. It's between you and your brother. God's already reconciled to your brother. You and I need to be reconciled to one another. And and by the way, the, the uh, statement you made is, is when the Holy Spirit's at work there and, and people admit they're wrong, those who are God's people have this, this bloom of, of life again. The salt suddenly comes out of the shaker, if you will. The light starts to glow brightly in us, and it, it shows up. It, it makes a difference. And, and it surprises us because we are so used to trusting our own power, but it ought not surprise us that God keeps his promise. And I think all of this, it points us back to the fulfillment of, Christ, fulfillment of the law by Christ. Mm-hmm. that we see him as the perfect example. That's why you have to see that Christ is our example throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but it's fulfilled, you know, by his death and resurrection. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, without the cross, all you have, Jesus is a good example, which does not save us, does not give us righteousness. That just shows us a good way. But as the one who did it all perfectly, we know that when his cross, you know, it, it is for us. And so I, I really do see this as reflective of, because I've been through this myself, reconciliation. I've, 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 I've led, I've tried to lead people through this. And the beauty of it is when people are actually able to be in the same room together and able to one, realize their poor in spirit, they are able then, and it's just this beautiful moment, beautiful time, able to say, yeah, you're right. And then there's forgiveness and they move on, like you said, restoration of the relationship. And there's no better feeling at that point. And it actually wasn't that hard. I mean, it, sometimes it takes only minutes. All of a sudden it's all over with and you almost forget about it completely. But yet it's but, uh, hard to get into a lot of times. Yeah, it's hard to get into as long as one's trying to keep control. Yeah. And the yeah. whole purpose of the reconciliation is to give up the control and, and to let, let God be the one in charge again, just as he is always always been we just don't want to admit it again it's back to that idolatry i'm going to be in charge of this stuff unless letting god be in charge of it and and this is kind of what jesus is getting at he says because if, if you end up stuck in this mode of i'm angry and i won't be reconciled you're going to end up in a place thrown into prison is the term he uses here the fiery gehenna he says basically you you not just you won't get out until you pay the very last coin he says you basically you really all never get out of that you're stuck you, you can't do that on your own. You have to be released from the prison. And that's the reconciliation that God's giving us in Christ Jesus. And that's why we're here in the world, and that's, that's why congregations exist. A, be reconciled with each other. B, shine as light. Be salt by helping others be reconciled to God. And it's, again, Paul picks up on the very same things earlier with the ambassadors of reconciliation. Paul didn't make it up. He really pulls it out of the Sermon on the Mount. 
there, there simply are not enough pennies to pay it all off, which is why Christ has paid the price for us. Pastor, we have about 30 seconds left here. How would you summarize our verses today for, for our listeners? I would summarize it very quickly in this way. God has made us who we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has completed all the legal requirements so that you and I are now free to be salt and light. Our call is not to make God happy, but to live in the world as salt and light, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, so that forgiveness might continue to flow from us. We call people to repentance, we repent ourselves, and the light shines. Pastor Stephen Tice, Vacancy Pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri, bringing us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Tice, thank you again for bringing us his gifts. You're very welcome. God's blessings with you. Enjoy the remainder of Advent and a joyous Christmas as well. All right. Merry Christmas to you. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. <music>